but let me tell you where I am because it's, and I don't mean to say that I knew what sustains me before, but I might say I always had a purpose. I mean, always had a purpose. Um, I always questioned anyway and found something, whether it was just trying to grow up to be old enough to leave home or to become a dancer in New York in the 50s or, you know, getting to Asia, whatever that is, um, whatever that was, certainly being a single mother, I had no question what sustains me. I didn't, I didn't have any time to think about it. I just had to work my butt off. Take care of the children, earn enough money, feed them, da 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 da. And now I'm, I'm 77 years old or 76 years old, depending on who's counting. <laughs> Meaning in Asia, you know, they give you credit for the first year of your life in utero. Oh. So I'm 77 in Asia and I'm only 76 here. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of the prenatal work. I, I believe we deserve the credit for all that work we do. <laughs> so, so. So I'm 77 years old, and uh, 10 years ago, actually, I moved up to Seattle from the Bay Area, where I had been for many, many years and had, you know, taught in three different graduate schools and had clients and everything, as well as traveling a lot. I left that because I moved to Seattle because my second child, my son, has was going to have a grandchild. I mean, was going to have a child, and I would be... It would be my grandchild. So I moved up to Seattle. Things did not work well because my the my granddaughter was injured at birth, which is my field, but I wasn't allowed to step into that field. So and things were so awkward with my daughter in law that I moved back to California. And with the with the birth of the second child I moved back up here again. So I'm living in Seattle, which I don't like. Um it's cold, gloomy, ugh. Um, I have a small practice when people find me. I, th- I think people in California, I left so quickly, people in California, I think they think I'm dead. And up here, very few people know I'm here, but on a few websites like SE, you know, people find me and I do have clients. But I moved up here for the second time to, what do I say, to... um counteract my daughter-in-law who feeds my grandchildren as much sugar as she can stuff in them. Mm. And I have, in this house, I have almost a half of an acre and I grow vegetables and I do all sorts of things trying to let the children know that that there's something else. That there's nature and there's the world and and um, not just television and video games and that stuff. So, strangely enough, I, I've been thinking a lot. So, what sustains me since you bring up, and it's such a nice way to put it. Um, imminently, what sustains me is contact with my grandchildren, mm-hmm. which I don't have often. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what else sustains me is growing vegetables and fruit and and um and the chickens i have um although i have more better conversations with my six chickens than i've had with many adults here in seattle <laughs> um hmm? and and uh, you know the growing vegetables and chickens 
Is it something that you used to have in Northern California? Mm-hmm. As soon as I had a child, well, as soon as I had a house where I could live, because I was living um, in Big Sur and, were, and teaching at Esalen a lot, but when I moved into Marin County and had property, I started growing vegetables because I wanted to feed my children as well as I could. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that, yeah, for a long time. But is that something that also was in your background growing up, or is that so? It's a, it's, it's a, it was a shift that you, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's something that you acquired as an adult. Something that I, yes, jumped into and jumped still don't know much about. But I trust nature a lot. Mm-hmm. So rather than do something, I just let nature take over. I happen to have an arugula forest, but, um, a lot of other things just don't work so well. But it, it's all me as an adult. I was a city girl. I lived in New York City mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as I got away from home. Um, and then San Francisco, no place for, for garden. But the first, but so all of my young life was sort of running away in a way, away from family, away from various things. And I stopped and found sustenance for the first time other than than outward direction, um, was going to Japan and living in Japan in 1965. Mm-hmm. I had always felt I was born in the wrong country. I knew I was born in the wrong family. Um, and when I was six and seven years old, I used to go to sleep holding my eyes back, hoping they would slant. Mm. I sleep, and I wanted long black hair, just long, straight black hair. And I wanted to grow up and marry the Dalai Lama. <laughs> Nobody knew who the Dalai Lama was. You know, it was during the time of the war, so they were dirty Japs, most of those Asians. How in the world would I get that? Mm-hmm. I got it. And going to Japan when I was, how old was I, 26, was like, oh, I have been in the wrong country. This is really, I felt at home for the first time. Mm. And, um, yeah, I felt at home for the first time. I felt more comfortable wearing Japanese clothing than I did Western clothing, which never seemed to fit me because I was either too small or something. And after dancing and studying everything that moved in Japan for a year, I entered a Buddhist monastery. To go to the other end, maybe not move so much, but sit still. And um, when the Zen master asked me what I had done in the United States, I had told him that I had been a dancer. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, Now you will learn the highest form of dance, movementless dance. <laughs> I thought, yeah, 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 I don't know. But anyway, a year and a half there... I don't know how or what, quite frankly, but things happen, and that still still sustains me in a way. I still feel more at home and and warm inside me when I think of that time, as difficult as it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I was the only woman in a monastery for, with 30 men traditionally being taught, so it was very, very challenging. 
And it was a challenge and it sustained me a lot. And I only left because I knew I wanted to have children. I wanted to have a family. And I thought that, and I wanted to test what my time in the monastery, what it had done for me, or could I take what I learned and bring it into the marketplace, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to sit on a mountaintop and be supported and do whatever you need to do, but how easy is it or is it possible when you're back with the traffic and the noise and everything? So I came so, back. So I want to maybe just like there give you a sense of an arc that I'm getting uh, so far is that mm-hmm. sense of a very powerful um, uh, force to say that what sustains me is I want to grow away from this place, which is not me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, leads you to New York, to dance, to Japan, and um, to having a strong sense of, ah, you know, like, ah, this is more like me. And um, then to uh, Zen, and um, and then, in a way, after having the arc going that way, of saying, mm, and now I want to bring this back to where I come from uh, and see what it's like to have this, you know, in the environment where I come from, in a broad sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how can I be comfortable in that environment where I was plopped? By whatever. Something else. Yeah, plopped. That's what it felt like. I was plopped, you know. (laughs) So tell Um, me, you want to say more about that? Actually, the funny thing is that I have no sense of direction. To this day, I have no sense of direction. I have gotten, gotten lost on my own property up in Canada, which is not (laughs) easy to do. But, um, when people used to comment on that, for years, years, I would say, oh, it, 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 that's how I was born. It was just a birth trauma. I got lost being born. And I knew nothing about what I was talking about. Many years later, as I've studied all of that work and experientially studied it and went back over and over and over to my own birth, I did get lost. Mm. I really did. I did get, I mean, so lost and so confused. And I died during my birth. You know, it took a lot of research to find that out but that's another big part of it and the growing away in a way Mm -hmm. or growing back you know eventually with all the work i did the reikian work and the you know and studying with loan and all of these things it really didn't come together until i got the the perinatal picture Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that sounds that um uh you know that the, the 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 determining thing was that being lost um, mm. and and actually being near death or being mm-hmm. dead and yes, back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's and you know I I just want to say when I listen to the interviews you do I love the way you listen I marvel at the way you listen and you re-verbalize or, or you put in different words reflect back to the person it's like whoa <laughs> I, and I think it's just and a wonderful, wonderful talent. I just want to compliment you. Mm, thank you. Yeah. So, and as you're talking, something else comes up mm-hmm. for me that is really big in my 
has always been big in my life and is bigger now for a strange reason, but it's my connection to the Holocaust Mm. and being Jewish. So all of my life as I grew up is however young I was when I started it. I think it was after this, but Mm -hmm. I don't remember when it was. The question was, why am I here? Why am I not there? How come I'm not scrubbing myself with a cake of concrete? You know, thinking mm-hmm. of soap. And all along, as I grew older, it was, would I sleep with a Nazi to save my life? You know, I would question myself all along the way. And it wasn't, it wasn't guilt. It was just a, such an unusual connection to that. And I have, by the way, read probably a hundred memoirs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the Holocaust, still do. <clears throat> and um, at least once, I mean, I'd been to a couple of concentration camps when I was in Europe and I could feel, I could, I could feel my relatives, my ancestors in one of them. But um, one time while I was, trading a cranial sacral session with a colleague of mine. We were both studying with Franklin Sills, and it was my turn to be lying on my bed in Mill Valley talking to him. I had two, with his hands on my head, I had two past life experiences, and I'd done research on that in the past mm-hmm. more knowledge knowingly because I really wanted to know why did I feel this way? Why was I always so tired? Why this? And I got some good questions. Um, some of those sessions, most of them I, I did always by myself with a little help of a little substance sometimes. But this was totally, totally spontaneous. Nothing except this man who I didn't know very well, his head on my hand his hands on my head, and I went back immediately to being in a concentration camp. Mm. And, I mean, I could, it was so clear. It was so clear. I, I could explain the whole thing to him. And what I learned was, other than the whole thing, I was standing on the edge. Of, I was 17 years old. I was standing on the edge of the pit with lots of bodies in there, and there was a Gestapo man right over there. And I'm lying there talking to this guy and telling him, explaining the whole thing. And then I say, oh, my God, I've been shot. And I had a pain in my side like I've never had before or since. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was actually shot. And then there was a great big boot that kicked me into the pit. Mm. I have always had lower back pains. Mm. I can even now, as I tell you, and this is at least maybe 10, 15 years since that time happened, I can feel the movement of the bodies underneath me who were not dead yet, who were trying to get up for air. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it was just an incredible experience. And what surprised me most of all, I mean, I was terrified, and I was also furious. Mm. I was so angry. And that I had never gotten before. I know how terrified, you know, the situation was for so many people, but being so angry. Mm. And after that, I spoke to Peter Levine, I spoke to Brian Weiss about it, and they all went, yeah, 
parallel lives, no problem. Of course it's possible. Because I was born in 1939, you know. How could I be there and still in Rochester, New York, or Detroit, Michigan, or something? But such a connection to death. So, so let's go back to the image itself, which is a very powerful, because when we say a connection to death, it could be something abstract. But at that moment, uh, you know, there was that very vivid sense of you, uh, you're standing in front, you're 17, you're standing in front of the pit. You know, there's all these people who are not quite dead, but have been thrown there. You have the Gestapo uh, you know, guy just uh, right next to you. We're not that far. Uh, and then you are experiencing the kick that propels you from where you are standing into the pit. First and mm-hmm. first, the gunshot. The gunshot, and, and the gunshot, and then you you notice how you're wounded. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the kick. You know, that, and the kick is something that you still can find uh, the sensation of. Mm-hmm. And then you're thrown into this place of people, and it's not just even dead as a curtain. You know, one moment you're alive, mm-hmm. one moment you're dead. Mm-hmm. But you, you, you're you seeing it in this pro- and you're also in the midst of people who are where the, 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 the stage of dying is prolonged. You know, they're not quite dead into the pit. They're in the world of the dead in the pit, but they're still you know, not quite dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's an intensity to the experience of death, you know, mm-hmm. that the phrase about uh, just uh, connected to death doesn't even begin to, you know, yeah. to, to describe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing that kept, you know, most people when they got shot, they fell into the pit. Mm-hmm. But what kept me standing was my anger. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. fury. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, so, so- and so you connected to the anger. And what keeps you standing. So in that sense, this is the moment of, you know, maybe what sustains me is my anger in that experience. Yes, yes. And I have to admit that I am an angry person. (laughs) (laughs) Ask my children. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going, oh, my gosh. You know, there there is a connection. Yeah, yeah. And there's also a connection with death because my mother died when I was three. Mm Mm-hmm. So all along, and then all of the people, you know, in Europe and everything. The, so anger, death, these, well, I don't know if death sustains me, but my anger sustains me a lot. Yeah. I was told by someone who was a psychic, and I was um, doing sessions with him because my first granddaughter was damaged at birth, and I was wondering how to help her without her mother, you know, throwing me out again. <clears throat> and he said, you know, I have never met anyone who uses their anger so creatively as mm-hmm. you. He said you could you could make a lot of money giving workshops on anger and how to use it. And then he said, but of course you'll be in a whole room of angry people, so I don't think I want to do that. But yeah, I've never thought of it before, but my anger does sustain me. Yeah. But you know, the way you're putting it together uh, in this context, especially in that vision, you know, that, that moment of there is, um, it's really anger as a life force. 
Yes. And, uh, and, you know, so it's, it's anger as a life force and it's anger at, you know, at evil. And it's so, it's life versus death. You know, so we're not talking about angry, um, so at least in that experience of it, the part of anger that sustains you is about, um, you know, maybe the, I'm alive. I'd rather be alive than dead and I'm fighting evil or I'm not letting, you know, something feels very powerful from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. What would it be if for a moment we don't call it anger? You know, not that there's anything wrong with anger. I mean, I happen to, to really like anger as a, as a very alive thing. But what you're talking about is, is a, an ambivalence between on the one hand, you know, like in a way you say, I don't want to be in a room full of angry people. So for, for the purpose of this, you know, next few minutes, if we just call it Ever in a room of angry people, you never know. Okay, <laughs> but would it be any different if we called it life force? Well, I think that's true. I think my life force is a good part of it is anger. Yeah. I think that's true. Maybe reverence of nature too, but yeah, um, and it it carries me. It does carry me. A lot. I could not, I could not erase two children on my own the way I did without any help if I didn't have that, that life force. And a lot of it was a lot stronger being angered than if it were, I don't know, something else. Yeah. So for the moment, you know, just um, as you're talking about, you say I couldn't have raised two children if I didn't have that. So in a way, uh, maybe the anger at those moments is like um, the soldiers, you know, uh, who ward off the attackers in order to make life possible. Hmm. Yeah, but I didn't ward it. Uh, hmm, that's interesting. Would you say that again? So, just you know, as you were talking about, I couldn't have raised two children without that life force. Then I'm starting to think of maybe the role of this anger is the life force, you know, materializing in the form of soldiers who are warding off the enemy in order to make life possible, you know, in order to make the raising of children possible. You know, that, and then, and then so when you're talking about, you know, the concentration camp and the pit, you know, the anger is, again, the soldier fighting back, pushing back against oppression. And... um um. Yeah, what I the first time you said that, what I was my reaction was, and then I didn't know how to put it in words. What I what I almost said was, yeah, but they keep the enemy away. What I did was pass it on to my children, but um, I didn't pass on the anger. But of course, there are the the reactions to that. Strangely enough, my daughter, who is a writer, has written two books, two memoirs, and her second one has just come out, and she's traveling and doing book readings. And basically, they're both about me. (laughs) The first one is called The Butcher and the Vegetarian, because I'm a vegetarian, and I raised them as vegetarian, and how her whole thing about eating meat. And this one is about us trying to garden together and how different we are. 
I mean, she's trying to exercise me and my anger. Neither of my children are angry people. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't be, but still. So so there is there is an aspect of the anger which is disturbing because you're seeing it had consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's hard to make peace with it because uh, there was a part that's very life affirming. And it's very much about life force. And there is certainly at least a part that has had consequences that you wish were not or that you feel uncomfortable about. Yes, yes. And at the same time, I remember Joan Borsenko said something about giving up all that stuff. Finally, when you get so old, you know, you get to be a grandmother. And I wanted to say to her, but there were too many people around her. I wanted to say, you know what? I'm afraid to let go of it because that's what keeps me standing. Mm. And I let go. And if I'm just this nice person, I'm probably going to go flop, you know, and crumble. But that's true. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the again, with that scene of standing at the pit, you know, the, the anger was what kept you standing. So letting go of that, it feels hard. I mean, it's really literally an image of life and death. Yeah. You know, it would be hard to. But I understand the fear you're talking about is if I let go of the fear, then there's nothing left me standing. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and one way that sounds like, hey, maybe I'll just be a nice old lady. But in another way, it's like, where's the rest? <laughs> right. Huh. Huh. That's interesting. Well, so my anger sustains me, but I don't think I want to put that out to the world. <laughs> hmm. Well, you know, let me, let me for, for a moment goes. It's like your anger sustains you and your anger is also a source of, um, um, I'm not sure what the word would be. Is it like, uh, trouble, second guessing, discomfort, uh, you know, but it's like there's a, there's, there's, there's both, okay? Mm-hmm. So, in a way, for argument's sake, What's coming up for me is like anger is your koan in some way. Oh, oh boy. That's interesting. Yeah, I would say that. I would say that. Huh. Oh, and do you know that's interesting because when I solved my first koan in the monastery, I was angry. Mm. I did. I used that energy. Ah, I just gave up everything. I tried so hard, so many things. That's really, really funny. And I went in there and I went. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Desperation would be another word for that. But yeah, anger is my koan. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Phew. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, there's an original face. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
because I was thinking, well, what, wait, so what's about this other part, nature? But um, I really do like what I call strong nature, strong weather. And you might say that's angry, the storms and everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm protected. Mm-hmm. But, um, hmm. Hi. So where do we go from here? So anger is my con. Anger is my life force. Hmm. And maybe also anger is your burden or your, um, your, I'm not sure whether it's the right word, but is, uh, yeah, burden is a good one. Mm-hmm. Baggage. Baggage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in a way, there's a lot to do with anger, you know, that's like, and it's a complex relationship with what sustains you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hmm. I've got a lot of weeds here. I could use a bit more anger energy to get them out because they're really, really strong and hard. <laughs> so where, where, where are you, um, inside with this, you know, as we're, we're staying with this anger. What's it feel like inside? Hmm. Well, what I, what my, before you said that, I was going to say, okay, Serge, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. What, but what I'm feeling inside is nothing really unusual. Like my stomach isn't tight. I'm still breathing. I'm a little cold because this is Seattle. Um, um, and part of my mind, a small part of my mind is going, oi, they, what do we do with this? <laughs> um, maybe I should have tried to have been nicer. <laughs> um, hmm. I actually, I'm quite calm with it. Yeah, yeah. Other than the thought of, Let's not tell the whole world that I'm an angry person. <laughs> but other than that, you know, it's the truth. And it's quite frankly nice to tell someone else about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And it's not just my children <laughs> knowing it. Right, right. So, so you know, to me, it feels like such a nice place of what, what we do with it is in a way pause with it, uh, make room for it, digest it. You know, that there's something about, uh, yeah, wow, there's so much about anger and there's good stuff and there's the difficult stuff and there's the koan part. And, uh, and so in a way, like the, uh, you know, what this does is simply is not rushing into doing anything other than simply making room for it. Yeah. Well, I have to say that I did a lot. I mean, anger gave me the fuel to do, to accomplish a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had three careers. I raised two children. I had a vegetable garden. I traveled and taught all of that. I could not have done that with just everyday energy. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For me, the anger was definitely, uh, what, premium gas, premium fuel. Um So it served 
But where to go further with it is, um, I, I think it is a good place to pause because I don't have any answers. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. But, you know, it feels nice because it's like, um, you know, the, the the whole idea about the, the koan thing is about living with it. Um, yeah. And in a way, what you're saying is you have lived with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. it's had had wonderful results in some way and some that you have more of a, you know, more problematic. Mm-hmm. But essentially it's about taking stock that in one way or another you have lived with it and not just necessarily in a one-sided way. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, um, something that's happening right now is that, um, I recently heard of a place here in Seattle that's a, what's it called? It's called the, the Holocaust Center for Humanity. And so I've decided I'm going to give them, you know, in my age you start thinking of where things go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to give them my library on the mm-hmm. Holocaust. And I actually was there a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to become a docent mm-hmm. to help young people understand, or other people, you know, not just young people, but going into schools and other things to help them understand. So that's a way, but and, I, and all of these books, you know, some of the people are so angry mm-hmm. from what happened to them, and others bury it, so mm-hmm. and others do things with it. It's very interesting how how any any energy can be used, but this specific anger energy is sort of like a special kind of fuel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Actually, it feels nice to have, like I said before, to talk to someone about this. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not only what sustains me, but it's how does this life force, this fuel sustain me? Mm-hmm. How do I use it mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. my life? And at different times I've used it in different ways. Yeah. And now coming towards the end of my life, how do I use it to get the most mileage out of it. Hmm. Okay, so what I'm thinking now is I can handle anger being my my fuel, my life force. Mm -hmm. What I really need to make sure that I do is use it well. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 
I manage very well to keep it out of any therapeutic work that I do. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> yeah, so there's the possibility of using it well. Yeah. Where was that play that I remember seeing in New York? Wasn't there an angry young man? I mean, play? certainly angry young man is such a, you know, topic for <laughs> movies I think was, and uh, plays. Yeah, but there was, there was a specific play that, that I'll have to research yeah. and see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... So maybe this is where we bookmark where we are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to be revisited. I appreciate this very much, Serge. Mm, mm. Yeah, and it feels really nice for me to be part of this. Hmm. Well, you, with, with your interviews, you must be a part of so many people's lives. Mm. <laughs> the way you reflect and listen. Mm. And speak back. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> this is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.